So uh, Philippians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1 today, and uh, we're going to be looking at verse 1 through verse 11 this morning, and I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we just read through this passage together. Since it's only 11 verses, I'm not reading a whole chapter today. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray over the next few moments that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, give us eyes to see what it is you want us to see today. Give us ears to hear from you as you speak to our hearts Lord, we want to live for you. We want to be your faithful people in the world today. Lord, we could have been born at any time and at any place. But Lord, your word tells us that even the day of our birth and the place of our dwelling was preordained and pre-established by you. And so it's not an accident today that we are alive in 2022. It's not an accident today that we live in San Antonio, Texas. It's not an accident, the family that we were born into. It's not an accident, Lord, that we are here gathered today as your people in your name with your presence here with us. None of this is an accident. It's all according to your good and perfect will and plan. And so, Lord, help us to live as your people, the people you have called us to be. Lord, to not live as the world, though we are in the world, but, Lord, to live as lights shining pointing people to the name above every name, pointing people to the reality of Christ, the reality of the cross, the reality of the resurrection, the reality of your return. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Now, Paul opens this passage with some, I would say, rhetorical questions. I think there's four of them. He begins by saying, if there is any encouragement in Christ. How many of you have found that that is a true statement? Is there encouragement to be found in Christ? Yes. Okay. Yes. So if there's any encouragement found in Christ, there there is. Uh, 
Is there any comfort in love? Yes. yes, there's comfort in love. Any comfort, not just some comfort, any comfort. Yes, there is comfort in love. Is there any participation in the Spirit? And here he's talking to the Philippian church and how they've been participating with Paul in his sufferings, in his ministry, and they've been doing it by the Holy Spirit. And so, yes, we can say that there is, they are participating in that uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit in their midst? And is there any affection and sympathy? Again, speaking to the Philippians and their relationship with Paul, which was the bulk of uh, chapter one, dove into that. And so these four sort of rhetorical statements, yes, there is Comfort, yes, there is encouragement rather in Christ. Yes, there's comfort in love. Yes, they have been participating in the Spirit. Yes, they have affection and sympathy towards Paul. So, therefore, this next statement they should do because he says, on the basis of those things, do this next thing, which is to complete my joy by. So, what is it? What is it that Paul says is going to make his joy full, going to make his joy complete? He says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, that's our affections, being in full accord, uh, that's, that's being on the same page one an- with one another. And again, it goes back to the statement of, and being of one mind. Now, there's one word that we could use to sum up all of these statements, though he doesn't use this word here. He, Paul uses this word often, and, and the New Testament writers do. It's the word unity. Everybody say unity. Unity. So what will bring Paul the most joy? Complete my joy, Philippians. Church, complete my joy by being unified, by having unity with one another. Now that's a very simple idea. It's a very simple concept. Yet unity is often one of the most difficult things to achieve. Isn't it? Unity, being of the same mind, being of the same love, being of the same purpose. How many of you have found that sometimes you don't even agree with yourself? Much less the person next to you. Unity. This is what we ought to be striving for. This is what we ought to be working for as a church in the body of Christ. Now, as we look beyond the church, as we look in the, the world that we live in, as we look in the culture that we're in, as, even as we look at the country that we live in, we find the name, the word unity, even in the name of our own country, the United States of America. But as we look at what's happening in the world today, what we find is that people are increasingly not united, but in fact, divided. People today are dividing into all sorts of different tribes and groups based on race, gender, so-called sexual identity, economic status, educational level, language, culture, background. In fact, there's an entire movement that's been taught in the university system for the last 30 years that teaches people that this is the primary, uh, the the way, the primary way that they should look at themselves 
is on these things. These are the things that define you. Your race is what defines you. Your gender is what defines you. Your sexual preferences are what define you. And to try to place you into these different group identities and then to pit those groups against one another to bring division. It's, an, it's, the, the, it's the ethos of our culture. It's, it, it's the, the predominant idea that, that is kind of the underlying idea that bubbles to the surface so often in all of our interactions with one another. Instead, what the Bible teaches is, is not this at all. The Bible says, in fact, that in Christ, we are a new creation. That in Christ, the old things have passed away. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's no race in Christ. We're the human race. We're, we're one in Christ. No more, these divisions are done away with in Christ. No more Jew nor Gentile. It even goes on to say with regards to salvation, that God's no respecter of persons. With regards to salvation, it's no longer male and female even. That salvation is not reserved for one different group of people over and against another. That Jesus died for all people. He died for the world, the nations of the world. So instead of what defining you being your character as an individual, the choices that you make, your personality and the decisions of, of your life, no, in fact, you're identified and defined by these external factors. Well, when that happens, guess what comes in? Division comes in. And that's what we see in our country. There's so much division, so much animosity, so much anger, because we're taught that not only are we divided along these lines, but that we are based not on our decisions, not on the content of our character or the, what's in our heart, but based on arbitrary things like the color of our skin, whether or not we are oppressed or oppressors. Has nothing to do with your heart, is what the world says, but the color of your skin. Now this, of course, flies in the face of everything that the Bible says. What matters is the heart. Again, what, what did... You remember the story when God sent Samuel to anoint a new king of Israel? And this really tall, burly, strong guy comes forward and Samuel says, the prophet says, oh, this has to be the new king. Look how awesome he is. And God rebukes Samuel and says, man looks on the outward appearance. But I look at, God looks at the heart. The heart is what matters. And so we live in a, in a culture today that is increasingly divided. And we as a church, we have to be very careful that we don't let the divisions and the thought processes of the world influence and infiltrate the church. Because it'll bring division within the church. There's, there's not a black church and a Mexican church and a white church and a Chinese church. No, in Christ there is one church. When, amen. When we get to heaven, there's not going to be all of these divisions. In fact, we're going to be united, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, singing and worshiping 
Christ. And our prayer as God's people is that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we should, I think we should have diversity in our congregations. That, that we shouldn't be all uniform, but we can still be unified. Amen. 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 So... That's the world. Now, as we look at the church, the church at large, again, that's really not the picture that we see. The picture we see today of of the church is that there are quite a few divisions within the church. Uh, In fact, there are right now estimated 45,000 Christian denominations. That's a lot. That's a lot of division. And it reminds me of that joke of the the guy that was stranded on a desert island and he was there for several years and then finally he was rescued and when the Coast Guard showed up, they said, tell us how you survived and, and, and show us around your island. And so he begins showing them around. He says, well, this is where I make my food and this is how I catch the fish and, and this is my hut here where I live and and then he takes them to another hut and he says, well, this is the hut that I go to church at. And, and then they say, well, what's that hut over there, that third hut? He says, oh, that's where I used to go to church. That's, I don't go there anymore. We all get the joke because it's so petty and ridiculous. But in fact, oftentimes that ends up being the attitudes of people within the body of Christ. Disunity is a real problem in the church. It's a real problem in the church. And this is why Paul says here to this local church in Philippi, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Make my joy complete by having unity. Now, I want to share with you three things about unity today. And... The first one is, well, on what basis are we to be unified? What are the grounds for unity? What are we united in as the church, as the body of Christ? What is it that unites us is maybe another way to say it. And he gets into that when he he starts talking about this fourth point, or or in in verse 5 rather, He says, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So be of this same mind. And then what he goes on to describe is the gospel. He goes on to describe the the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the return of Christ. And so what is the basis of our unity? What is the foundation of our unity? What is it that unites us together? It's Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the truth of who Christ is and what he accomplished and what he has accomplished in our lives. That is what unites us together. 
The church is not a, a social club with, who, who's based on an affinity for religious activities. Amen. If that's all the church is, the church will not be united. But it's Christ who unites us. We are united in him because the same work he has done in me is the same work that he has done in you. And that makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, all of us are born in sin. All of us have sinned and, and chosen to sin against God. Because of that, we are all hopeless in our own efforts and in our own natural state before a holy and righteous God. But God, who is rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. We're saved by grace through faith. You, you see, the cross, the gospel message is the great equalizer. It, it, it puts Jesus on the throne and the rest of us not. You know, we're all the same in God's eyes. Rebellious sinners who have chosen to rebel against God. But God because of his great love for us, has pursued us and saved us and called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, the gospel is, is the most humbling and humiliating message. The gospel says, you are wrong. You are not right. He is right. And we must bow down before him. And when we look around, there should be nobody else standing. It's just Jesus. And so that does away with, with all of the other little things that we would try to sort of put ourselves in classes over and against one another. Because in God's eyes, the gospel says, no, you're a sinner who needs salvation. That you have nothing to boast in. And that's what Paul even says. I have nothing to boast in except the cross of Christ. And so guess what? Every race needs salvation. Amen. Whites need salvation. Blacks need salvation. Asians need salvation. Hispanics need salvation. Indians need salvation. Red and yellow, black and white. We all need salvation. And then we come to Christ and he saves us. And then we share that in common. And it makes brothers out of enemies. It makes sisters out of enemies. That's why the only hope for the world is Christ. Because he is the only one who can take enemies and turn them into brothers and sisters. You see, we must lay everything down at the foot of the cross. This is the basis of our unity. It is the work of Christ in our lives. And again, we see this in the Philippian church. As we saw in Acts chapter 17, as Paul planted this church on his second missionary journey, it was a very diverse group of people. 
The first person that was saved was a wealthy businesswoman, Lydia. The second person that we see come to Christ is a demonic uh, slave girl that Paul cast a demon out of. The third person in that city is a jailer who beats Paul up and throws him in stocks and bonds in prison until there's a great earthquake and the jailer comes in on his knees and says, what must I do to be saved? And him and his whole family are saved. And so you have this sort of upper class, uh, high society businesswoman, this slave girl that's been delivered of demonic oppression and this sort of blue collar guy, this jail worker. And yet they come together as the body of Christ in Philippi. And what is it that they have in common? There's only one thing. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And so Jesus is the source of our unity. He's the basis of our unity. And if we will keep our eyes fixed on him and his work in us together, we will be unified. But as soon as a a people, a church, a group of people take their eyes off of Jesus and take their eyes off of the gospel and start putting their eyes on anything and everything else, all of these other ills, all of these other social issues, and they make that the basis of their unity, guess what? It's going to fall apart immediately because those are temporary bonds. But in Christ, we are united by something eternal, Christ himself, a bond that cannot be broken. We are united in him. So he is the basis of our unity. He is the basis of our unity. The second idea I want to share with you about unity is found actually in a prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. So flip back with me a few pages in your Bible. And we're coming back to Philippians 2, so don't lose that. But flip back to John chapter 17 for a moment. John chapter 17 is known as the high priestly prayer. Uh, This is Jesus uh, on the last night of his life making intercession uh, before the Father as he's heading to the cross. And Jesus prays for his disciples that are there. But then he shifts his prayer in verse 20. And he begins to pray for the church. He begins to pray uh, for you and I. And so John 17, 20, Jesus praying to the Father, he says, I do not ask for these only, these 11 disciples. Judas had already gone off to betray him. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, who is he talking about there? Us. We are the ones who have believed in Christ through the witness, through the word of the disciples, of the apostles. And so here Jesus, before he goes to the cross, not only is he praying for his disciples that he spent three years with, but he's also praying for us. And what is his prayer in verse 21? I pray that they may all be one. That unity, that we would be unified. Now what type of oneness or or unity should we have? He says, just as you, Father, praying to God the Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, that they may also be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So we're to be just as unified as the Father and the Son. That's the type of unity that he is praying for in his church. In verse 22, he says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfectly one. And what's the result of this unity? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Here's the second point of unity this morning. The second is that unity in the church is a good testimony to the world. The world is watching. The world is watching. And what does the world see when they see the church today? Do they see a church united or a church divided? Do they see a church loving one another, serving one another, putting one another before themselves? Or do they see a church arguing with one another on Facebook? Jesus didn't say the world will know that you are my disciples by your arguments with one another on Facebook. He said the world will know that I've been sent by the Father by their unity with one another. So unity in the church is a good testimony to the unbelieving, watching world. But the opposite is also true, isn't it? If unity is a good testimony, what is disunity? It's a bad testimony. It's a bad testimony. And again, He's not praying that the church would be united with the world, but that there would be unity in the body of Christ. And so the, the first point is that Christ is the basis of our unity. The second is that our unity in the church body is a good testimony to the world. And then for the third point, flip over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. 1 Corinthians 3, this unity is something that is talked about in many of the New Testament letters because it's something that's, again, very important because it's our testimony to the world. If we can't love one another, if we can't get along with one another, it tells the world that you don't have the Spirit of God alive on the inside of you. That all of this stuff is not, is, is not happening the way it should be. It's not a good testimony to the world. And so unity is a, a, a theme that comes up over and over again within the New Testament letters. And in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul has been having this discussion with the Corinthians about their divisions within the church. And the Corinthians had all kinds of divisions within the church. They divided over which Christian preachers they liked the best. They divided over how they should worship together as a church. They had divisions about communion and how they should take communion together. They had divisions over the use of spiritual gifts within the church. Now notice all of these are good things. It's, it, 
It's good to, to have preachers, amen? The preachers they were dividing over was Jesus, Paul, Peter, and Apollos. Those are all wonderful preachers. If you were going to have an all-star team of preachers, those would be your top four picks. And nevertheless, they're dividing over those things. So they're not dividing over, over main issues. They're not dividing over central issues of doctrine. They're dividing over good things. Worship is a wonderful thing, but they couldn't agree on how it should be done. And so there were divisions in the church. Taking communion, the Lord's Supper together, was a wonderful thing, but they were dividing over how it should be done. Spiritual gifts are a blessing to the church, but there was divisions within the church on how they should be in operation. And so Paul writes to them to try to bring unity because they're dividing on these things that should be a blessing to the church. And so in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, Brothers, I could not teach you or address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants or babies in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? The third point today is that disunity is a sign or a result of immaturity. Immaturity. He says, you're, you're, you're living in the flesh and, and you're acting like infants and I, I can't feed you with 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 true and and we're not true but I can't feed you with with weighty things with 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 meaty things I have to feed you just the the little spiritual milk because you're not ready yet to receive it because you're still living in the flesh you're acting like children and the evidence of this he says is that there's jealousy and strife among you that you're behaving in a human way so disunity is a sign of im Maturity, because it is only a child, or it should be, let me say, it should be only a child that always has to have their way. A sign of a mature adult is that when they don't get their way, they don't fall on the ground and pound their fists and kick their feet. Now, none of us do that, hopefully. But we may do that emotionally, We may act that way sometimes when we don't get our way. As, as a father who has four young children who all have their own thoughts and ideas on how the world should be run and how the family should go and what we should do and what we should eat and all of these things. We're constantly, as a parent, you're, you're trying to lead your children from this idea that it's not all about you. That, that you, you don't, your world doesn't come crumbling down when you don't get your way. That there are, are, are better ways to live. There's better ways to respond. And so immaturity is, is evidenced when 
someone doesn't get their way and everything comes to pieces. And I think we all know people like that, don't we? We all are kind of on eggshells sometimes. Because if they don't get their way, then it's going to be bad. But we don't know what way they want today. And so we got to kind of figure out what mood they're in first. And that's a sign of, Paul says, immaturity. But the, the mature believer is able to understand that I don't always have to have my way. I don't always have to have my way. Now, this, again, he's writing to a church. He's writing to a group of believers. He's writing to, to, to people who come and worship the Lord every single Sunday together, and, and their lives are interwoven and intertwined together. And he says, make my joy complete. Fulfill my joy, and not only his joy, not only his plea, but answer God's prayer. Answer the prayer of Jesus by don't making everything, don't make everything all about you all the time. Instead, instead, be unified. Instead, he gives us then the fourth point, which is the steps to unity. The steps to unity. And so let's flip back over to Philippians chapter 2. I want to close this out by looking at these steps to unity. So firstly, the basis of our unity is Christ and the work that he's done in us. I recognize he's done the same work in you. That makes us family. The second is that unity is a good testimony to the world, to the watching and unbelieving world. The third is that maturity, unity is a sign of maturity and disunity is a sign of immaturity. And then fourthly now, these steps. What are these steps to unity? Well, he starts them in verse three. The first one has to do with our motivations, our heart, our heart motivations. Let nothing be done from rivalry or conceit. So, so before he even begins to talk about our actions, he talks about why we do what we do. So as a church family in the body of Christ, as we interact with one another, as, as we uh, have our community groups, as, as we serve one another, whatever we do, let it not base, be based on rivalry, or that could also be in, uh, translated strife, or conceit, or thinking of yourself more than you ought to think of yourself. That, that deals with the, the heart motivations. Now, are there, are there ever rivalries within the church? Yes. Yes. Well, they always get the best seat. They took my parking spot. How dare they? I've been parking there for 40 years. How come it seems like they're the only ones that ever get the opportunities? And 
There's all kinds of rivalries that can start to to take place within the church. He says, don't do anything out of that motivation. So the first one, our motivations. The second, he goes into our attitude. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Humility. The King James translates this lowliness of mind. Your attitude, that we would be humble towards one another. The best definition I ever heard of humility is first what it is not and then what it is. And that is humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not, oh, you know, I'm just such a failure and I'm just such a loser and I'm just a grubby little worm. No, that's not humility. That's psychosis. Um, (laughs) Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but just thinking of yourself less. And to do that, we have to think of others more. Now, again, this runs just total contrary to human nature, doesn't it? When I get up in the morning, you know who I'm thinking about? Me. That's who I'm thinking about. The things I got to do, the immediate needs of my body that I must uh, discharge, right? I mean, you just, I'm hungry, right? I got to get my coffee or I'm not going to serve Jesus today if I don't get my coffee, so... I got to get caught, you know, you immediately, it's just, it's just your flesh. We all live a life in the flesh. And that's what Paul was telling the Corinthians. You're just living in the flesh. You're just doing what comes easy. You're just doing what comes natural. But hey, believer, we're filled with something supernatural. We're filled with a power beyond us. We're filled with the spirit of God. And so what he's calling them to and, and what he's calling us to It's to not do what just comes easy, to not do what just comes naturally, but instead to listen to the voice of the Spirit and to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we can only think less of ourselves and and more of others and more often if we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us. And I have found over my 40 years of serving the Lord is that Typically, the first reaction that I have to any stimulus is the flesh. The first thing. So somebody does something to me, says something, get an email, whatever, text message, phone call, whatever. The first reaction is the flesh. And so I've had to train myself to not go with my first reaction, but to stop And just pray, Lord, Lord, I'm submitted to you, Lord. What would you have me do? What would you have me say? What would you have me think? And as you pause and wait, it's usually not very long. Here comes this other totally opposite, contrary voice. Love them serve them, bless them, right? And, and that is not coming from your human nature. It's not coming 
from your flesh. And, and like Paul said, if we do that, we're not just living as mere humans, but we're living as God's people. We're living above uh, the, just the, the sort of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth sort of living. So humility, the attitude. The, the third one he goes on to is our outlook. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's hard too. Our natural way of living is, I am the most important person in my life. That is our natural mode. We don't have to do anything to live that way. If you just do you, if you just YOLO, I mean, that's the way you're going to live. You are first. Me, myself, and I. My way or the highway, right? I mean, that's just the way people live naturally. But here he says there's another kind of outlook. That's to count others more significant than yourself. To count others more significant than yourself. Now, they may or may not be more significant than you. I don't know. But whether or not they are, to obey the Lord, we must count others more significant than ourselves. Amen. So our motivations, our attitudes, our outlook, the way we see others, and then our actions. Now we're getting into the actions. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Look out for one another. Care for one another. Is there, is there a need that you know of within the church body? Can you meet that need? If you can, meet it. Serve one another. Care for one another. Love one another. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. And all of these things are designed to get us from just navel-gazing Christianity to, to looking up and saying, wow, there, there's a whole lot of other people in our church body. And what can I do to serve them? What can I do to love them? And if we do these things, if we serve one another, this will help us to maintain unity with people we may even disagree with. How do we maintain unity when we don't all have the same ideas? It's because if we allow our motivations to be shaped by the word of God, our attitudes, our outlook, our actions to be shaped by the word of God, even when we don't see things the same way, we will still have unity with one another because unity is a, a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual component. It's not that we all see eye to eye on every single issue. It's like love. L love is, is not just a feeling. Love is a decision. Love is a commitment. Love is action. And unity is the same way. We choose to live in unity with one another. And as we move forward to and press into being mature believers, 
we should think less and less of ourselves and just our needs and our wants and our desires being satisfied. And we should look to meet the needs, the wants, the desires of others within our church family to serve them. And then he roots all of this in Christ and how Jesus came from heaven to earth to serve us. And if Jesus stooped from heaven, God, creator, taking on human flesh, born in a manger, born in poverty, born in obscurity, washing the disciples' feet, If the God of the universe can so humble himself, whatever degree that we might think in our mind that we are stooping to to serve others, it cannot even compare to the degree to which Christ humbled himself to come and to serve us. And so there is no task, there is no person beneath us serving them. Amen. If we have the mind of Christ. And so how do we maintain unity? We serve one another. We look out for one another. We care for one another. And if we do these things and we think this way, we will have unity amongst the body of Christ. Division is easy. Division is natural. Division is normal, but here Paul is calling us to not be normal, but to live in that power of the Spirit, maintaining the unity of the faith with one another. Amen.